All right. Uh, in lieu of us starting late, I'm going to get started on time. I'll introduce myself. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Kevin Zakharoff. I am an anesthesiologist and pain medicine physician from New York. Uh, I am in my 10th year of teaching at the Stony Brook School of Medicine, part of the state of New York uh, health uh, education system. And uh, this is my 10th year speaking at the 10th year anniversary of Pain Week, and it's been a great ride. Uh, other than teaching at the medical school, uh, I do a lot of education uh, about pain management. It's my passion. It's been my life. Uh, for 10 years, I managed uh, the largest pain education website for healthcare providers on the internet, painedu.org, uh, and I put a lot of work and energy into that. And it's been great. Uh, it's been a great ride. So it's great to see you here this morning, and I'm glad it's not 7 a.m. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything to disclose uh, with respect to industry-related projects. And uh, hopefully what we're going to do today is not create a lot of agita. I think that this talk is perfectly positioned uh, at the beginning of this meeting. Uh, because I don't want to give you anxiety. What I really want to try and have you walk away from this talk with are things that you need to seek out and find and use as a checklist. So at the end of the meeting, you sort of have a lot of these questions answered. I'm going to actually pose a lot of questions to you. Uh, I have a lot of agita related to this uh, because I can't seem to run from this carousel that follows me around. Uh, I flew in yesterday. Uh, typically what will happen on the day I fly in is I'll go to a restaurant by myself, I'll have my little e-reader with me, and I'll be able to sit down and read the newspaper. Uh, so last night at dinner, uh, I opened up my book and I was reading the Saturday edition of the Wall Street Journal. I hadn't gotten a chance to read it yet. And for those of you who might have read it, there were two articles about the opioid epidemic, and I had agita. <laughs> so I'm not looking to transfer that agita to you, but I am looking to sort of give you some perspective of what I've seen swimming in the swimming pool for as long as I have been, and things that I need to convey to you to think about with respect to the subject matter. So when we think about pressure, uh, I'm sure, with respect to all of us that are in healthcare today, we feel pressure, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter, and this is a great time for me to say that if there's anything on the slides that uses the word physician, it means I didn't write it, because I am not presuming in, even remotely the fact that we're not a conglomerate of all different disciplines of healthcare. So you see the word doctor, you see the word physician, it's somebody else assuming that the only people involved in this story are doctors. But we know otherwise. We know that we're pharmacists and we know that we're occupational therapists and we know that we're nurses and nurse practitioners and we know that we're physician's assistants, et cetera, et cetera. And when we think about what pressures are happening in healthcare today, where is there not pressure? 
And why would anyone want to get off the carousel? I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? It's just patients with chronic pain. And isn't managing chronic pain pretty simple? All we need to do is follow the guidelines. That's all we need to do. Now, when I say follow the guidelines, the question that should be thinking in your mind is, what guidelines am I talking about? There are so many guidelines out there, I can't even tell you which the one is on the top of my head. I thought in 2009, when the American Pain Society and the American Academy of Pain Medicine came up with a set of guidelines for the management of chronic non-cancer pain with chronic opioid therapy, I thought that was going to settle the issue. And what I realized very soon was that people in primary care don't get the journal of pain. And pain medicine isn't waiting in their mailbox every month like it is on mine. So when you say follow the guidelines, are we talking about the American Society of International Pain Physicians? Are we talking about the American Academy of Family Practitioners? There's a lot of guidelines out there. So one of the things on your checklist should be, what guideline makes sense to me? And what guideline do I really need to think about following? Because we are not going to give up on the patient. But that's the end of the talk. If this were a gospel meeting, every once in a while, I want you to say, yeah, but we are not going to give up on patients. We could rely on our training, right? Because we have all gotten a boatload of training in our path to healthcare where we went to either pharmacy school or medical school or nursing school, right? Well, the sad reality is that only 4% of medical schools, as an example, in the United States have a formal curriculum. I'm proud to say that at Stony Brook, I am actually creating a full semester curriculum now. I have an elective that keeps closing out, and the faculty has finally identified the fact that this is such a big problem, the lack of education, that it, it deserves its spot. And this is why we're all here, right? So you've got to rely on your training. Think about something you could take away from this meeting that you're going to be able to apply in your clinical practices or in your interactions with patients in a meaningful way. And it's pretty simple because every patient is basically the same, so we could treat them all the same and use the same exact paradigm to treat patients, right? That's really not true, and we know that. <laughs> and of course, we could use existing paradigms for long-term treatment. I don't know of an existing paradigm for long-term treatment. I know that people are saying what is not a good paradigm for long-term treatment, but nobody seems to be offering a good solution for what the long-term chronic pain patient has for us to offer them. You need to think about that. You need to think between now and Saturday when this meeting's over, what can I do for those long-term pain patients? There'll be, there'll be plenty of people talking about what not to do. But we need you to walk away this week with what I can do. Now, when it comes to adherence to treatment plan, if you're anything like my wife, you're adherent until you start to feel better, and then your adherence uh, ratio starts to go way, way down. Like I always, you know, I used to prescribe antibiotics for her back in the day when she... She convinced me that she needs them. And uh, I used to make her raise her right hand to finish the antibiotic. Because generally, by day seven or eight, when she was feeling better, 
I'd notice her adherence would start to go down. Well, that doesn't really work in, when you're managing chronic pain. And the bottom line is that 82% of us in this country, we don't actually follow directions the way we're intended to. It's just the way it goes. So that's a problem, especially when you're managing chronic pain. And it's not like federal mandates or state mandates are problems, right? And of course we know that the federal mandates agree with the state mandates. There's no discord there. Regulatory scrutiny isn't an issue. The media, which we'll be talking about soon, that's not a big deal, right? It's not like every time we turn on the TV or the radio or open up a newspaper, we're faced with someone dying of a prescription pain medication overdose, is it? I brought with me today two letters that I received over the course of the past week because it's always good for me to try and relate my talks to something that's really current and happening. One of the letters is from the Surgeon General. Probably many of you received it. And it's dated August 2016. And it says, Dear Colleague, I'm asking for your help to solve an urgent health care crisis facing America, the opioid epidemic. Everywhere I travel, I see communities devastated by opioid overdoses. I meet families too ashamed to seek treatment for addiction. You received this letter? Raise your hand. Okay. If you didn't receive it, you might have received it if you're in clinical practice. And uh, you will if you haven't. Now, tomorrow at the keynote, I'm going to be paying tribute to people who entered our essay contest for a scholarship to come to this meeting. And when I was reading the essays, one of the things that I was struck by, and I'll be talking about it tomorrow night, is a number of the people who wrote essays talked about the pain epidemic in this country, not the opioid epidemic. So when we think about what, what's happening and what the regulatory scrutiny of it is with respect to opioids, let's not lose sight of who we're really here for at the end of the day. We're really here for patients at the end of the day. The other letter I received, I'm licensed in Pennsylvania and Arizona, is I received a letter from the Pennsylvania Licensing Board telling me that as of now, the prescription drug monitoring program is going to have to be accessed every time a controlled substance is prescribed. This is something that I've been living with in New York for a long time. Good thing. The articles in uh, the Wall Street Journal actually talked about the effect that the prescription drug monitoring program is having in a positive way in the state of Kentucky. It mentioned that in some states, they're actually using prescription drug monitoring programs to provide pr clinician report cards to give some snapshots of how prescriber patterns are taking place and so on and so forth. And of course, last on the list, making it very simple, is the issue of aberrant drug-related behaviors. Not a big deal, not something we need to worry about today, right? Are you calling for help yet? I know I am. This is where my agita comes from. Let's start at the beginning. Chronic pain, is it easy to define? I've read some publications that refer to chronic pain as any pain that lasts longer than a month. I've read others, and I actually define it as pain that lasts greater or longer than three months. 
I never hear subacute pain mentioned. And subacute is probably somewhere in between acute and chronic, but I never really hear, hear about that. Is it pain that persists after tissue healing is, takes place? Is it a disease? Is it a comorbid condition? This is something that you need to walk away from this meeting with if you don't have a clear definition in your mind of what chronic pain is. And when other people are talking about their definition of chronic pain, you need to know what it is they're referring to. The line between cancer and non-cancer pain, which I'll be getting to in a minute, is getting very blurry these days. It used to be that when we talked about patients with cancer pain, there was an emotional aspect. There was a terminality in many cases in the clinical condition, and people said, oh, cancer? Okay, we're going to do whatever we need to do. We're not worried about dependence. We're not worried about aberrant drug-related behaviors. You're going to get what you can. Well, you know what? A lot of cancer patients, thankfully, are surviving their disease and going on to live with, concert, with chronic pain as a result of the treatment, the condition, or both. Guidelines and advocacy might be different with respect to it. We know the American Cancer Society is a very powerful political lobby, and they advocate tremendously for their patients. And then we need to also consider palliative and long-term treatment. This is all complicated stuff. Just the last slide and this slide is enough to make people say, I've got to get off. And of course, Every patient with chronic pain, just like people with diabetes or blood pressure, is pretty much the same, right? We can do a templated assessment. That fits really well into electronic medical records today, doesn't it? We can use a templated treatment plan. We always have a definitive diagnosis. Lab testing is convenient, easy, and we're sure about what we should do and what we shouldn't do, right? And of course, that adherence thing comes back up again, and there's no frustration in managing patients with chronic pain. It's an extremely rewarding thing to do. Now, one of the things that I differentiate with respect to chronic pain and any other clinical condition, and I say this time and time again, is that the patient gets to have a say as to what a successful treatment outcome is. And when the patient has a say in what a successful treatment outcome is, and something that Dr. Glick and I were talking about just before my talk today becomes really important. Patient education and patient understanding. If the patient doesn't understand what's going on, how can you make shared decisions with them? So something to think about in the course of a lot of the sessions that are going to be taking place here this week is what is there for me that I can take away? Or where can I find something that could help me educate my patients so they understand? Because in the absence of understanding, there is no such thing as an informed consent. And in the absence of an informed consent, as far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as effective pain management. From a system level perspective, I talked about education already. All the support is there for us that we need, right? In Stony Brook, the hospital that's attached to the medical school where I teach, if you want to get in to see someone in the pain clinic, it's 12 weeks until you could get in to see them. That's the wait time. 
a year and a half in Canada. I believe it. Policies and procedures exist, right? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, low back pain, here's what we do. Shoulder pain, knee pain, here's what we do. I have been involved in review of a number of analyses from third-party payers where they looked at individual practices, 500 charts, 250 were managed by people in primary care, 250 were managed by pain experts. Even within a given practice, there was no rhyme or reason to the way in which patients were managed or treated. So one of the things that I would like you to take away from this week is consensus. And you have to be the messenger of that consensus to spread that consensus and talk about what's happening. Otherwise, guidelines, one of you in a practice might use one set of guidelines, another might use another. We'll get to the CDC in a minute. We have to talk about the CDC. But there needs to be something on the basis of which there's consensus. So if you're caring for a patient and you're away for whatever reason from your practice, the patient is getting a consistent level of care. Well, that's not a problem in a system today, right? Expert consultation, I talked about. Canada, a year and a half. Sony Brook, 12 weeks. Where you are somewhere in between, it's not easy. We're hearing a lot about multidisciplinary treatments. And a good friend of mine, Michael Chapman, many years ago at this conference, talked about how there was a quote-unquote death of the multidisciplinary pain clinic. What does that all have to do with multidisciplinary treatments and why would they be going away? Because of money, because of reimbursements. All of the reimbursements, in, uh, in the absence of reimbursements, none of this can happen. I happened to meet on the way here yesterday a young lady at the airport who was from South Africa. And she's here in the room today, and she talked to me about the fact that certain prescription analgesics in South Africa are not covered by third-party payers. How, how can we propose multidisciplinary treatments for patients in good conscience if they're not going to be reimbursed? When you're at a session that talks about the role of multidisciplinary treatments, Ask the speaker, either during or after the session, that question. It's an important one. For as long as I've been giving these talks, people have talked to me about the fact that, how do I do all of this? How do I do all of this in clinical practice, and where's my reimbursement for it at the end of the day? Because as healthcare gets systematized, it gets more and more about the bottom line at the end of the day. Reimbursement's a key piece of the puzzle. Everything is staying the same, right, in pain care? <clears throat> this is probably one of the hottest topics right now, and that is pain being designated as the fifth vital sign. This happened in the year 2000. This is the VA publication that was put out when it was endorsed as the fifth vital sign. And basically... It created a scenario by which we were told, you need to ask everybody about their pain. And you know what? If you look for it, you're going to find it. It took six years before somebody published an article that said measuring pain as a fifth vital sign does not improve quality of pain management. Now, I don't know where you sit, on what side of the fence you sit, 
I can tell you this, that if I could go back in time, what I would do is I would make function the fifth vital sign. I wouldn't make pain on a scale of zero to 10, fifth vital sign, because what difference does it make? I've had patients who have pain on a scale of four out of 10 who can't go to work every day, and I've had patients who have pain on a scale of eight out of 10 and get up and go to work every day and do what they need to do. Well, you know what? Here's a publication that was just in MedPage about the opioid crisis, not the pain crisis, the opioid crisis, and scrapping pain as the fifth vital sign. It's going to happen. So this means if you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. Are we all familiar with what HCAP scores are? Does anybody not know what they are? Okay. What HCAP scores are, are they're, sur they're surveys that are randomly sent to patients after treatment to see what their satisfaction level was. Reimbursements from CMS, Center for Medicaid and Medicare in the United States, is the actually determined by the scores on these satisfaction surveys from patients. To combat opioid epidemic, HHS moves to remove pain management questions from HCAP surveys. So basically, what's happening is we're being told, you know what, pain is the fifth vital sign. We shouldn't have looked for it. We wouldn't have found it. Why do so many people in the United States have pain? Because we ask about it. And if we're going to ask about satisfaction with respect to pain management, let's stop asking. This has led to this, in part, the CDC guidelines. If there, there is a great talk that is being done about the CDC guidelines, I highly recommend that you attend it. If you're not familiar with it, these are a set of guidelines that were put out by the CDC because they are looking at the opioid epidemic as something similar to an infectious disease. They were published in March. On March 15, 2016, in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, they were published the following month in JAMA. If you just Google CDC guidelines for prescribing opioids, you will find them. Uh, and it's a free public access document. You need to know what's in them uh, because it definitely sets the stage for what all of you who are in primary care uh, will be doing when you prescribe opioid medications. No pressure, right? There is no controversy about opioids, right? I mean, we're all pretty clear, especially in the long-term treatment perspective. Well, here's the data. And this is from May 10th, 2016 of this year. It goes out into 2014. And the bottom line is that prescription opioid deaths in the United States from the year 2000, when pain became the fifth vital sign, have gone up. And it looked like in 2012, 2013, that there was some plateau there. But in 2014, which is far back as this data goes right now, it looked like there was a spike. One thing that's important for you to consider, you want some extra agita, is the fact that heroin-related deaths are being accounted for in this number. They're not distinguishing between prescription related deaths, prescription opioid-related deaths, and heroin-related deaths. 
Now, this is a map of the United States with respect to drug overdose deaths in the year 2014. And you could find your state there. The darker the color, the worse the state. So unfortunately, West Virginia is pretty dark here. But you could see New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland. Everybody always tells me that their state has the worst death rate of all the other states in the United States. Well, here, here's the data. But the bottom line is it's a problem everywhere. And the mitigating factor is that when somebody dies of a heroin-related overdose, it's counting against us. I used to naively think that my relationship was with the patient. And I didn't have to worry about what happened to the medication and what I was prescribing for the patient outside of that relationship. Well, it turns out that that's not really true because a lot of these deaths are not necessarily for the patient for whom the medication was prescribed, but in many cases, the, the medication was prescribed to a valid prescription. So it involves me. It involves you. Now, I attended an advisory committee meeting, and I participated in an advisory committee meeting back in May of this year. And for those of you who are familiar with REMS education, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, as it pertains to opioid medications, uh, there was a meeting because the original mandate from the FDA on the manufacturers of extended-release long-acting opioids was to only apply this ruling to extended-release long-acting opioids. And way back when this decision was made, I was involved with that advisory committee meeting, we told the FDA that you need to apply this education to all opioids. What this meeting actually was determining was should that happen? And are there any other changes that should be made? And the recommendation of the panel was that it should absolutely be changed to apply to all opioids. Because in some cases, long, immediate release short-acting opioids might be more dangerous because there are more pills to be taken. And the panel made a recommendation that the education should be mandatory. So one of the things that you should think about is, does my state require education for my CME, for my maintenance of licensure, any part of it to be devoted to pain and its management? And the answer is, if it's yes, find a REMS program. They're all over. Go to a pain weekend. Get the credit. Now, Time Magazine, the media, published this article April of this year, How Obamacare is Fueling America's Opioid Epidemic. And what this article really detailed was how HCAP scores promote prescribing of opioids to get better satisfaction survey responses from patients so the reimbursements will be maintained. And Time Magazine has been a big player with respect to the media and the attention it's called to the opioid controversy. This is from June 15, 2015, Why America Can't Kick, kick Its Painkiller Problem. This is from back in 2007. This is my second year at Pain Week, I guess, if the first one was in 2006. This was in the New York Times. When is a pain doctor a drug pusher? 
Time published Why Pain Hurts. These are all cover articles. Understanding Pain, That Aching Back, Latest Word on the Oldest Agony, The Right and Wrong Way to Treat Pain, all culminating with this article, The Problem with Treating Pain in America. January 12, 2015. And what they said is, the overriding question is, are we as a nation approaching management of chronic pain in the best possible manner that maximizes effectiveness and minimizes harm? I think that's a good goal to walk away from this meeting. What can I do to maximize effectiveness and minimize harm? The NIH said healthcare providers are poorly prepared for managing pain and many hold stigmas against their own patients seeking relief. If we're honest with each other, that's probably true, right? A lot of us haven't received the education in our foundational training. And there are a lot of people who say, I just assume that patients are going to abuse and misuse the prescription pain medications, especially if they're in certain demographic areas. Providers are sometimes quick to label patients as drug-seeking or addicts who overestimate their pain. Lord knows there are a lot of people who are putting this message out there. Ajita? Ajita. Some physicians fire patients for increasing their dose for merely voicing concerns about their pain management. For better care, the NIH says the medical community needs to start applying individualized treatment for chronic pain and a multidisciplinary approach should be used. Right? It's real easy. Right? In the, in the days of electronic medical records, it's real easy to apply an individualized treatment plan and a multidisciplinary approach when there's not a lot of reimbursement for these approaches for us. It's almost a, a lose-lose situation. And since pain is both physical and emotional and can affect all aspects of a person's life, there should be more than one specialty involved in patient management. How practical is that? <clears throat> I, I, I put these two article titles here for a reason. They're very similarly titled. One is written by Jane Ballantyne in 2010, the other by Mitch Cohen in 2015, and it's a clinical ethics approach to opioid treatment for patients with chronic pain. And it's funny because even though the topics of the two articles are very, very similar, the stance is very diametrically opposed. Jane Ballantyne is very, very much against the use of opioids, unless it's a very last-ditch kind of scenario, and Mitch Cohen makes a very good case for using it as a component for compassionate treatment as long as you maximize safety and minimize harms. There's a lot of controversy out there, and we cannot forget about this, and this is something that is gaining a lot of traction, a lot of attention these days, and why the FDA this coming January is going to be modifying the labels for all immediate release short-acting opioids, and I'll go through what those changes are, and that is babies being born addicted to opioids. I did a series of talks earlier this year in Sarasota, Florida, for the Department of Health there, and in Sarasota Memorial Hospital, or 
the big university center in Sarasota, one out of every 10 babies in the neonatal ICU is there because they're born addicted to opioid medications. This, this is a real billboard that was in Times Square in New York City. Now, you remember that slide with opioid-related deaths and how I showed you they were going up since the year 2000? This is the deaths related to heroin from the year 2001 to 2014. In Florida, in the year 2010, just as an example, there were 47 deaths due to heroin-related overdose. In 2015, there were 468, tenfold increase, or a thousand percent. These two lines are just males and females, but if this is not the definition of what a hockey stick is, I don't know what. So it seems like if the numbers of opioid prescriptions are going down and the number of heroin-related deaths are going up, it seems like we really are seeing what's called the balloon effect, where you squeeze the balloon and the other side of it bulges out. But the bottom line is, this is all being labeled as prescription pain medication-related deaths, whether it's heroin or opioids. Hopefully somebody's going to be talking at this meeting about heroin, and hopefully somebody's going to be talking about fentanyl, which I think is one of the best drugs ever developed in the history of medications. If the, if the license plate fentanyl were available in New York State, I would have it, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> but I don't know that it really has any place in a primary care setting where a patient's being solely managed for non-cancer pain. <clears throat> Prince died of a fentanyl-related overdose. We know that now. Now, if Prince didn't have cancer, and Prince had chronic back pain, you have to ask the question, what was he doing on fentanyl to begin with? And could it have been prescribed to him? I'm hoping the answer is no. But the bottom line is that the reason that we're going to be hearing more and more about fentanyl, and again, put this on your checklist to take home, drag out of someone, even me, you see me walking around, a discussion about fentanyl and why fentanyl is all of a sudden making the news. It's because it's synthetic. It can be made in a laboratory. And it's really cheap and it's coming over from China. The key ingredient is really inexpensive. It goes over to Mexico, and then it's being sold at a tremendously large profit. It's not about cutting the heroin and all of this other stuff. And there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal about a family's ordeal with heroin and fentanyl. And basically what they said was that when they talked to people who were addicted, what they said is that the high from fentanyl was better than the high that they got from heroin. This all has to do with us and our discussion with patients and managing pain. It's bizarre to me that I could even be using a slide like this in the context of treating patients with chronic pain, but the facts exist. So here are the upcoming label changes uh, for immediate release short-acting opioid analgesics, which are coming in January. There's going to be a new black box warning about the serious risk of misuse, addiction, overdose, and death, and this is even if taken as directed. Immediate release short-acting opioids should be only reserved for pain severe enough to require opioid treatment in which nothing else works. Clear instructions regarding patient monitoring and how the drug is administered, 
And obviously, with respect to the neonatal abstinence syndrome, chronic maternal use of opioids during pregnancy can result in that syndrome. And that potentially harmful drug-drug interactions that can result in development of serotonin syndrome, which is really low on my list personally. But I will tell you this, the article in the Wall Street Journal this weekend that talked about the beneficial effect of PDMPs talked about the fact that when these report cards are being created for healthcare providers, people who prescribe both opioids and other CNS depressants like benzodiazepines, they're going to be a red flag. Now, in New York State, electronic prescriptions became mandated as of March of this year. Two years ago, August, uh, PDMP access became mandatory for all Schedule 2, 3, and 4 medications. And as of about a month ago, maximum prescriptions is seven days for a first prescription for an opioid medication. You can not prescribe more than a seven-day supply in New York State. This is all coming. This is all coming. These are all part of the patient education pieces. And you cannot and will not be able to prescribe immediate release short-acting opioids if you don't convey these things to patients after January. Naloxone is a drug that I thought as an anesthesiologist would always stay in my little red cart. I never really thought we were going to have discussions about naloxone at pain week, actually. It's a non-selective short-acting reversal agent for opioid-induced respiratory depression. I mean, let's face the facts. People who die of opioid-related deaths die usually a respiratory arrest-related event, right? Their breathing goes down. They stop breathing ultimately. Narcan reverses it. It only reverses it for a short period of time, which is why they had to land Prince's plane and why they were able to get him to the hospital. But the bottom line is naloxone is going to become a part of this story, and you're going to have to think about it. Indian Health Service put out this set of guidelines for who potential candidates for naloxone are. And if you look at this list, it's pretty much everybody. Recently rotated to a new opioid, prescribed more than a 50-milligram morphine-equivalent dose, on-log-acting opioids, particularly in conjunction with short-acting opioids, polyopioid use, prescribed opioids longer than 30 days, over the age of 65, people with households who are at risk of overdose, patients who have difficulty accessing EMS services, and concur concurrent prescriptions with a list of other medications. Naloxone's going to be a part of this story. In many states, legislation is actually taking place or has already taken place to make it what's called behind the counter, sort of like Claritin D, where you don't need a prescription for it. You can go to the, the pharmacy, and if you show them your driver's license, you can get the medication. Naloxone's a part of the puzzle, and I know there's a talk about naloxone. You need to put on your checklist, what do I need to know about naloxone? Find out at some of the exhibit booths what you need to know. But the bottom line is it's possible in three to four years, if I'm reviewing a medical record where opioids were prescribed and any of these criteria were there and naloxone wasn't even considered in being prescribed along with the opioid, the patient has a respiratory-related event, someone in the household has a respiratory-related event, somebody may turn around to you, and it might be me, and say, was naloxone considered? Now, I can just tell you from my experience clinically 
that when we had patients on epidural or IV PCAs in the hospital, it was commonplace on the headboard of the patient's bed or by the chart to have a 3cc syringe with an ampule and Narcan there, right? That was so the nurse or whoever came in to see the patient would have it readily available. That's what they're talking about. But the educational hurdle here is huge because in many cases, the person administering the Narcan is not going to be the patient, right? You're not going to say, oh, my respiratory rate is dropping. <laughs> it's going to be somebody else. This is a challenge. It's enough to make you want to get off the carousel. Other controversies, urine drug testing. We still have a ways to go with respect to that. What do we do? How often do we do it? The CDC guidelines do mention some baseline level of frequency, so review those and make sure you have some, some kind of basis for use of them. How do I interpret them? You see Dr. Jeff Huden at some point during this meeting? Talk to him about Remitigate. It's an app where you can type in the dose that the medication, of the medication the patient's on, what the urine drug screen shows, and maybe make some sense out of it. In states where marijuana is now legal, it's, it's a real problem as to what you do. You need to know. Hormonal imbalances, uh, firing a patient, role of pharmacists I see only increasing, not decreasing in this story. Is what I do billable or not? Is the patient's family my concern? That whole idea, is it just between me and the patient, or is it a much broader sense of community? The reality is it's a much broader sense of community. And the list goes on and on. Now, just quickly, uh, a review of some terminology. I do this in almost every talk I give with respect to it. Abuse is not the same as misuse. You'll have access to these slides. It's important to know that if somebody's misusing a medication, they're taking it for the medical reason it was prescribed, just not in the way it was prescribed. So they're taking an extra dose. Maybe they miss a dose. Maybe they took themselves off the medication. This is where my wife would fall into. Abuse is taking it for a non-medical purpose, having nothing to do in the way it was prescribed, for something that has no medical purpose, such as an altered state of consciousness. Dependence and tolerance are states of adaptation. They are not states of addiction. And addiction is a chronic primary neurobiologic disease where somebody abuses the medication and it causes them harm and they continue to do it. So I recommend and I'm giving this to you, that you take these definitions home with you and that you use them and that you teach other people to use them because certainly nothing bothers me more than this whole talk I'm giving you uh, than me hearing people use the word dependence when they mean addiction. Not the same thing. And tolerance is a normal state of adaptation. It's normal if a medication is metabolized through the liver for the liver to ramp up its ability to deal with the load, and then you need more as time goes by. That's normal. That's not addiction. And diversion is doing the wrong thing. A universal precautions approach, which was written by Doug Gourlay and Howard Height back in 2005, is a great way to sort of make a mental checklist about what you need to do. You need to have a differential diagnosis, at least. You need to do some kind of psychological assessment of risk of addictive disorders. You need to get informed consent, have a treatment agreement. Doesn't need to be a written treatment agreement. 
It could be a verbal treatment agreement. The informed consent doesn't need to be written. It just needs to be documented in the medical record. Most people find it easier to use a written treatment agreement because it can be just saved in the medical record. Some kind of pre- and post-intervention pain assessment, hopefully it's going to be function. The fact that you're making some substantiation about why opioid therapy, if it is used, or other adjunctive medications are used, is very, very good to have in the medical record. And then that you reassess pain and function, you regularly assess the four A's, a la Dr. Steve Pasek, who will be seeing a keynote tomorrow. Periodically review the diagnosis and comorbid conditions and document it all. This is all really simple and easy to do. And of course, this is in the face of very little regulatory scrutiny, right? Just so you know, the FDA and the DEA don't typically get along with each other. So why do we stay on the carousel? Well, I think the reason I stay on the carousel is because pain is one of the most common reasons that people seek medical attention, just for starters. And that it's undertreated in a lot of situations. One of the things that frustrates me, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, is the fact that you're going to hear a lot of what not to do. You've got to take something away from this meeting of something that you can do, something that's going to be practical, something that you know you can do. You're not going to necessarily change the lack of specialized clinics, but you need to say to yourself, if I need help, where am I going to go? And we're already in. This is a graph that's way too small for you to see, but the bottom line is, these are, this is Medicare data, Part D claims for opioids in the year 2013. The top of the list is family practice, the second on the list is internal medicine, the third on the list is nurse practitioner, the fourth on the list is physician assistant, and then it's orthopedic surgeons, dentists are definitely in there, and so on and so forth. This is, this is our, our problem to deal with. We are there. We have no choice. We can't go back and get the education in our training. It's why we're at a meeting like this. We're already on the carousel. We're in the game. And this is an article. Remember I showed you the, the day that the CDC guidelines came out? It was March 15, 2016. This is an article that was written in the New York Times on March 16, 2016, the day after the CDC guidelines were written. And it's an article about a primary care physician in Lincoln, Nebraska, where he is the first and last resort for patients in his community. And the title of the article, you see it. There are patients in pain and a doctor who has to limit the medications he prescribes for them. This is a challenge. Come back with something that is going to enable you to say with confidence, I'm going to be able to select the appropriate patients. I'm going to be able to document what I need to document, and I'm going to be able to do what I think is the best balance between safety and harm. This is real. When I read this article, it seemed really real to me. I felt like I was communicating with somebody who was here at this meeting. It is all about the patient, after all. 
He talked in his article about a 55-year-old woman with chronic pain who had three rotated vertebrae in her lower back, migraines, and post-mastectomy for breast cancer who was with chronic pain. And you know what? Her husband OD'd. Her husband OD'd on her medications. And what she said is, it's people like my husband who screwed the rest of us over. Now, if that's the truth, then what I would posit to you is, what do I do if I feel like a patient's an appropriate candidate for opioid therapy, and how do I make sure their husband doesn't OD? Come away from this meeting this week with that, as opposed to putting up a sign in your office saying, we do not prescribe opioids, because that's not the right answer. That's not why we're in this. Our mission, just like the American Pain Society says, the U.S. Pain Foundation, American Society for Pain Management Nurses, American Chronic Pain Association, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Care, it's all the same thing. It's about doing compassion treatment for patients. It's about caring, which is defined as a noun as a work or practice of looking after those unable to care for themselves, especially sick or elderly people. That's why we're here, certainly why I'm here. It's challenging, and we're all a part of it, but we're in it all the same. Thank you very much.